It's Sunday morning. Time for the Great Outdoors with Charlie Potter. Brought to you by the all-new Chevy Silverado and ChevyDriveChicago.com on Chicago's very own 720 WGN. Welcome to the Great Outdoors Show. Charlie Potter, your host here on WGN Radio. I've got a show this morning that I mentioned last week I would begin doing bits and pieces of for the next six months or until you can't tolerate it. And that is a little bit of a retrospective for the first part of the show. And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cover an absolutely idiotic, and I mean idiotic, decision by the United States Department of Agriculture. Maybe that shouldn't come as a surprise, but I'll cover that in the second part of the show. But to start off with, hard to believe, but it was 40 years ago, to almost to this date, within two days, that I began a journey that would change the rest of my life or shape the rest of my life. And that journey was the travel to the furthest north reaches of Manitoba, as far as you could drive, and six months later, end up at the end of the road in Venice, Louisiana, and then by boat go to the mouth of the Mississippi River, where eventually I sunk the boat. But let's not start there. Let's start with something that, I, and I hope you enjoy this. And if you don't, let me know, and we won't do this again. But I think you will. So I graduated from Northwestern University, and my dream for many years had been to follow the waterfowl migration from its northernmost points as far as I could go to its southernmost points. As a recent college grad, I, I had a diploma from Northwestern and not much else. So I traveled in the summer of 1982 to New York, and I walked into the offices of Field and Stream, Outdoor Life and Sports at Field. And back in 40 years ago, as you may recall, those of you who had those publications or even more recently, they were, they were the big deal. Any doctor's office, any dentist's office, any attorney's office, any, any, any place you went, any newsstand, field and stream, outdoor life, sports and field, were on, were on sale. Subscriptions were ran into the millions. They were independently owned at that point. So I went to New York and brazenly set up meetings with the editors of all three publications. And I walked in the door as a 22-year-old, and I remember... Mike Toth, who was the associate editor at the time of Outdoor Life, walked into his office and he said, what do you want? He said, we're not hiring. And I said, no, I'm not here to be hired. I'm, I'm going to follow the waterfowl migration for over 1,000 miles. Well, actually a lot more, close to 2,000 miles. And, and I want to write about it for your, for your magazine, Outdoor Life. And he looked at me, and I remember this like it was just yesterday morning. And he started to laugh, and he laughed, and he said, that. It's the most foolish idea I've heard of. What makes you think, not only can you do that, but what makes you think I would want to publish your material? Have you ever written for anybody? I said, no. He said, you went to Northwestern. Did you graduate from the Medill School of Journalism? I said, no. I was a communications major. He said, so what are your qualifications? And I said, I love to duck hunt. I love adventure, and I think I can write about it. He said, I'll tell you what we'll do. If I take your articles, I'll pay you $500 for a regional piece, $1,000, excuse me, $450 for a regional piece and $1,000 for a national piece. No promises. I doubt I'll ever publish anything of yours. I left his office. I walked into Field and Stream, had a meeting with Ben Sperano, who was the editor. 
pretty much a similar conversation, same outcome at Sports of Field. All three of them said, good luck, send me what you write, and if we like it, we'll pay you. And ironically, the pay for all three was exactly the same. Here we are 40 years later, and if you were to write an article for one of those, well, Outdoor Life and Field and Stream have merged, and there is no newsstand publication of any of the three. So think how times have changed. You can't buy a newsstand publication of any of the three. The biggest writer for Sports of Field right now, Chris Dorsey out of Denver, Colorado. So anyway, and you get paid today even less than I got paid 40 years ago. So I came back to Chicago, not with my tail between my legs, but thinking they didn't say no. They said, send me what you write, and if we like it, we'll publish it, and if we don't, we won't. So I had a few problems. First of all, I had hoped they would give me an advance for the trip, and I sold them on what a great trip this would done would be, knowing that I knew about it, had written about it, all the way to the length of flyway. I thought one of them would want to buy at least you know, the whole trip, the whole package, and pay me a lot of money to go do this so I could get the equipment I needed and all those things. Well, as it turned out, none of them wanted to do that. And while they were intrigued that I was going to do this, two of them said, good luck, I bet you can't finish it. And they didn't know anyone who had done it. Today, 40 years later, with all the technology we have, lots of people have done what I did back in 1982, which was in a different world with a lot less technology. And I'll cover that some other show. So I went back to Chicago, went up to our farm in Libertyville, and began to put together a game plan for how I could, on a basically a threadbare budget, somehow figure out how I was going to start and go at least until I could get some magazine articles published. And along the way, I was told about a guy by the name of Jim Phillips, who had started a magazine called Wildfowling. I called Jim Phillips, told him the same story, and he liked my idea. His was strictly a duck hunting magazine, and he said, I tell you what, you write about that journey, and I'm an editor, unless you can't write at all, I can take whatever you have and I can edit it and I'll publish it for you and I'll pay you $300 a story. So I'm thinking, well, if I can do this, maybe I can make $1,000 a month or something or $2,000 a month. Of course, I didn't know, I did not know that they wouldn't, with the exception of Wildfowl, any stories these magazines took wouldn't run for a year later. There was a one-year lead time. I was introduced to George Riger from Jim Phillips. George Riger was the iconic conservation editor of Field and Stream, probably the most, well, not probably, he was the most widely read outdoor writer in America. I called Mr. Riger, as I called him, and told him what I wanted to do and asked him for advice, and he he felt, geez, I might be competition for him. I didn't get a lot of advice. We later on went to become great friends, went on to become great friends, and he helped me and helped stop the Yazoo Basin Drainage Project years later. That's a different story. So I came back and I figured out what could I do with the money I had saved up from working before college. I got a little help from my parents who believed that why not follow your dream at least for a year. So I set off. The equipment I had was a used pickup truck with a used sliding camper on it, four tires that were kind of bald. And at that point in time, I had befriended Buddy Melgus, the famous sail, Olympic sailor, sail make, sail maker, boat maker, and he had built. He was building Melgus duck boats, and Buddy said, "I'll tell you what, if you, I'll give you a duck boat. These were little boats that you rode. If you write about what I'm doing, if you get a magazine article published, I want you to talk about Melgus and making duck boats." 
So I began to cobble together some free equipment. And almost 40 years ago to this day that I'm talking with you, I pointed my used camper truck north, towing a trailer with a, with a semi-V 16-foot Alumacraft, which had more gear in it than I knew what to do with. And on top of that was my buddy Melga's duck boat. And I headed north over 1,200 miles, well, actually 1,462 miles to be precise, from Libertyville, Illinois, to the Pa, Manitoba. And I had a phone number of a farmer that I was told to contact. Ducks Unlimited gave me the number. They said he flew surveys for Ducks Unlimited or the breeding grounds. And if I gave him a call, he might have some information on how I could get started because he knew where the birds were. This is how you did things in 1982. There were, there were no satellites. You couldn't Google Earth anything. And what I had was the Ducks Unlimited magazines. I collected them over the years. And whenever they wrote about the PA in northern places, I had torn them out. So I, I knew I was going to the PA because that was the epic breeding ground, the farthest north breeding ground that I could drive to. And when I got there, I wasn't really sure what was going to happen. I was given the name of the L&M Sporting Goods Store, which until recently was still in business. And I, I began the drive. And let me tell you, that's a long drive, particularly in a used pickup truck that probably couldn't go much faster than 55 miles an hour. And by the way, in 1982, the speed limit was 55 miles an hour. Imagine that today. So that's about as much as I want to sort of cover the first day. And I'm not going to do this by any means every day. I've touched on it in the coming months. I've got six months of adventure. But I headed north up through Madison, Wisconsin, La Crosse, Minneapolis. Minneapolis went on north, crossed the border north of Grand Forks, North Dakota. For the first time in my life, I was in Canada and going through customs. Back then, while you showed up, there was no passport needed. I just said, hi, I'm going, to, I'm going up to the pod, and I told the guy what I was doing, and he asked to see my driver's license. I gave him my driver's license, and he wished me good luck. He didn't ask me if I had guns, shells, liquor. He didn't ask me anything. No passport. It was just phenomenal, phenomenally easy. Can you compare that to today when try going to Canada right now, which I'm going to try to do in a couple of weeks. It's a different adventure. So anyway, to round this out, I headed up through Winnipeg, and I ended up on over 450 miles of gravel. The paved, the road was not paved from Winnipeg to the Pa back in 1982. You try driving on 450 miles of gravel, towing a trailer with rocks going everywhere. Sometime I'll tell you about how many flat tires I had. Anyway, that's the kickoff to something I did 40 years ago. I hope you enjoy at least the beginning of this journey. I'll touch on it from time to time. When I come back, I'm going to talk about the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And by the way, I will be reporting from the PA two weeks from now as I make my journey up there for the 40th time. I'll report how much it's changed over the years. Not a lot of us have 40 years of going to the same place at the same time. It, the world is so different. And even though there's no urban development in the PA, it's incredibly different too. I'll tell you more about that in a couple of weeks. You're listening to Charlie Potter on the Outdoor Voice of Chicago and America, 720 WGN. And first, a message from our longtime sponsors, the Northwest Indiana and Chicagoland 
Chevrolet dealers. When sunrise is your alarm clock, life is different. You eat a ditch for breakfast. Love the smell of diesel in the morning with a hot cup of joe. The weather report is 40% chance of mud. And corporate pull, that's 36,000 pounds of towing capacity with a gooseneck trailer. Mudden is PTO. You know sometimes when the paved road ends, the fun begins. Chevy Silverado 3500 HD is waiting to run over something, anything. No road, no problem, because the best way out is always through. A trouble rides a swift horse, and you don't want trouble pulling a backhoe loader. Chevy Silverado HD is a wake-up call. Now, during Chevy truck season, get a $1,000 accessory allowance toward the purchase of a new truck with accessories. You worked hard for your money. Spend it smart. So see your Chicagoland and Northwest Indiana Chevy dealer today or go to ChevyDriveChicago.com for all the details. Chevy Silverado HD. Power up and experience life in HD. It's Charlie Potter and the Great Outdoors on Chicago's very own 720 WGN. Welcome back to the Great Outdoors show. Charlie Potter here on WGN Radio. I promised you I would talk about what I consider, and I think many consider, one of the most ill-conceived, and basically there's the only word for it is dumb, ideas to come out of the Department of Agriculture. Last week, out of nowhere, the Department of Agriculture announced they were banning the importation of harvested birds from Canada because of the bird flu. Ducks Unlimited wrote up extremely good press release on how this was an ill-conceived idea. Paul Smith of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, a longtime friend of mine, called me the other day. We talked about it. He wrote a great piece about it. Chris Dorsey wrote, wrote a great piece about it as well. And, and the question is, why? Why is the, is the Department of Agriculture banning hunters from bringing birds back from Canada? My simple question is, how can a frozen duck or a frozen goose or a frozen grouse or partridge, how can a frozen bird that has been fully processed in a cooler give bird flu to birds flying overhead with feathers on and going thousands of miles across the continent. And by the way, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, maybe billions of birds leaving Canada, which is the epicenter of, of bird life in the world, the prairies, the prairie wetlands, leaving the prairies, Flying south, going all the way to Costa Rica, the Bahamas, going to Nicaragua, covering the entire southern part of the United States. And, and the Department of Agriculture is worried about a few duck hunters with some frozen ducks coming across the border. Those frozen ducks are going to come out of their coolers. They're going to go straight into the freezer. And sometime this winter, over a wonderful duck dinner or a goose dinner or a grouse dinner, the hunters that that shot these birds will sit down with their friends and talk about the stories and enjoy the complete circle of life. Hunters don't go hunting to shoot something and leave it and not worry about it. At least not the hunters I know, and I know a lot of hunters. Hunters are sportsmen. Poachers are not sportsmen. They're criminals. But hunters are the greatest conservationists our country has known, and there's lots to back that up. That's just not pure rhetoric. So they issued this, by the way, on Friday of Labor Day weekend in the evening. Thousands of hunters have already gone to Canada because the season opened September 1st. 
They're in Canada. They're totally unaware of this. They're going to come to the border, whether it's Buffalo or, or Grand Forks or all the way out in Cal- south of Calgary, coming through Alberta, British Columbia. They're going to arrive at the border. Maybe some already have, others on their way. And they're going to be, have their birds confiscated, and they're going to be thrown in a dumpster. And again, I come back to the question which so many of us asked is, where's the science? There is no science. Ducks Unlimited, Delta Waterfowl, Max McGraw Wildlife Foundation, California Waterfowl Association, I could go on and on. The organizations that have the best scientists, waterfowl scientists in the world, have all said, this has no scientific basis. None. Not only that, the Fish and Wildlife Service, which is responsible for migratory birds, was not even consulted. The Fish and Wildlife Service found out about this, according to the director, when they read the press release Friday night. What kind of organization is the Department of Agriculture to do this? Are they that, I guess, are are they that, do they feel that they can operate with that much impunity? So what's going to happen, and Paul Smith wrote about this really well, is all of a sudden there are going to be a lot of people who don't go to Canada. I happen to be going, as I mentioned, in two weeks because it's a four-decade ritual. And even if I didn't shoot a duck, I want to go to the paw. I want to smell the north wind. I want to see the aspen and the poplar in their full color. It's the beginning of, it's the beginning of fall, and the air is so clear. But, but I will shoot ducks. But I'm not going to shoot ducks that I can't bring back. So I guess we're going to eat more duck than we usually do. And, yes, we'll give some ducks to some friends. But it's a different, we're not going to be able to bring any back. So how many hunters are not going to go to Canada because they can't bring the game back? A lot. So it's going to hurt the Canadian economy. Department of Agriculture could care less about the Canadian economy. We know that. But it's going to hurt a tradition that so many people have had for so long and without any scientific basis. So if you're listening, please fire off an email to the Department of Agriculture and ask them where the science is. We've been told, and I'm not saying this is a political statement or anything of the kind. You know what I'm going to say. We've been told to follow the science. We've all heard that ad nauseum is related to COVID, sadly. We have, I'm not even going to drag COVID in this. not a COVID conversation. But follow the science. The Department of Agriculture has no science. They have no credibility. Yes, they have standing because... Apparently, they, have gov- they consider this a poultry, but I hope Ducks Unlimited, Delta Waterfowl, and others stick to their guns and that they demand the Department of Agriculture reverse this. And Tom Vilsack, if you're listening, sometimes I know your staff does, please turn this around before it's too late. Thanks so much for listening. Sorry to end on that note, but I won't. I'm going to end on a happy note. The dove season in Illinois has been spectacular in many places. One of the best in in many years. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next Sunday morning with much more in the great outdoors. This is Charlie Potter, the Outdoor Voice of Chicago and America, 720 WGN.